Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Today, I'm welcoming an incredible trio to the podcast. Maithili Sankaran, Chitra Nayak, and Shruti Ramaswamy are the co-founders of Naitri, an organization dedicated to creating a network of South Asian professional women. Most recently, they launched the Naitri Futures Fund, a startup investment fund with an investor base composed of primarily South Asian women. Now, a little bit more on the women behind Naitri. Chitra Nayak is currently an independent board member at companies like Infosys and LifeWorks. Most recently, she was the COO at Comfy, a real estate tech startup. And prior to this, she was COO at Funding Circle, an online lending marketplace. She was at Salesforce for eight years, where she served as COO of Platform and SVP of Sales Development. Chitra has an MBA from Harvard Business School, an MS in Engineering from Cornell, and a BS in Engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology. Now onto Maithili Sankaran. Maithili led regional operations for the U.S. India Business Council and the American India Foundation. She also served as CEO of Coolidge, a web service company. Earlier in her career, she spent several years in research and product at IBM and AT&T Bell Labs. She has a degree in physics from Texas Tech University and holds an executive MBA from the Wharton School of Business. Shruti Ramaswamy is a technology growth equity investor at Iconic Capital, an investment firm that has served the likes of Sheryl Sandberg and Jack Dorsey. Prior to her current role, Shruti was an analyst at Goldman Sachs. She's the co-founder of Shakti Collaborative, a digital platform that showcases the narratives of South Asian women. She holds a degree in economics from the University of Chicago. As you can imagine, I have a lot to talk about with this all-star ensemble who've done so much work in the realm of advancing South Asians. I'm thrilled to welcome these three leaders, friends, and supporters to the podcast today. Welcome to Trailblazers. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. So the first thing I want to ask, and maybe Jitha, this can be for you, how did the three of you actually meet? So Maithili and I have actually known each other for, I'm going to say 25 plus years. Wow. We've known each other a long time, but we actually started talking about Naitri two and a half years ago when we said, is there a need for a group that is not just about women, but a smaller subset that is about South Asian professional women. And that's how that started. And then Maithili, maybe you can talk about how Shruti came into the group. Yes. So, you know, for me, the stark absence of women that looked like me in many of the networks that I was part of, whether it was founder networks, investor networks, women's leadership networks. And in the last five years, I was actively involved in several of these networks. The stark absence and that lack of representation was prominent. And it started to sort of gnaw at me, wondering, because in my own personal networks, I knew so many amazing women, including people like Chitra. And so I felt that there really was a need to bring together 
women that looked similar, had similar backgrounds. So that's how I started really informally first. And I knew Chitra had already worked, had led women's networks at Salesforce and was also interested. So I was at a conference in San Francisco one, I believe, October day in 2019 when I had lunch with Chitra and coffee with Shruti that same day and brought up this topic of bringing together South Asian women and creating a network and uh, really thought of this as a cross-generational, always wanted this to be a cross-generational network because, as you know, I have two young girls. I wanted them to feel like there was representation and they could see what they would like to be. So really that triggered lots of conversations. I've known Shruti since the day she was born, literally. (laughs) Her dad and I had worked together. So knew both these amazing women in my network, but we had never, ever had professional discussions. A little more on the Salesforce Women's Network. I co-founded that about 11 years ago at a time when there were no ERGs even. And I had to convince the head of HR that this was not in any way discriminatory to others by creating a women's network. And so it's amazing to see how far the world has come. But ever since then, I've had South Asian women coming to me both at Salesforce and then beyond, saying, is there something here that is just for South Asian women? And so that's been percolating for me for about 10 years. And so I had started to think about that when Maithili came to me. It seemed like the perfect precipitation moment for us to think about doing something. Yeah, and I'll just add that when Maithili reached out to me to get coffee, I had no idea what to expect because, as she (laughs) mentioned, I grew up with her daughters. We're best friends and I'd always viewed our relationship not as one where we'd be working together, but she had a fantastic idea. And she mentioned that she'd been speaking to Chitra. And from my experience as a young professional, I didn't realize that I craved that South Asian female representation in my career until I started working after college in investment banking. And it's interesting because I grew up in the Bay Area, which, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s was seeing a large influx of South Asian immigrants. And so there was no shortage of my culture around me. And unlike, I think, a lot of South Asians in the U.S. and different parts of the country, I was very comfortable with my identity and who I was because there were just so many of us around. Yep. And then when I got to my career, it was a little bit different of a story where I didn't see the same role models ahead of me in the path that I was pursuing. And the, I think the other thing that's interesting about Our community is when I grew up and I went to all of these family parties, I saw the divide between South Asian women and the moms having their conversation in one part of the house and the dads having their conversation often about money, work, investing, all the things. And there was a difference, despite the fact that many of the moms were working and had ambitions and could participate in the same conversation. And so that it was always in the back of my mind as to why weren't these groups converging or why wasn't there a space to do this? And I think the other great thing that's come out of this for me, as well as the other young professionals that are part of Need3 is the ability to have peer and role model relationships with amazing leaders like Maithili and Chitra, right? Like we're also used to seeing them in a parent-child context, but it's very much not that way within our organization. I and mean, it's really cool to see that and to facilitate that. Yeah. Super, super interesting story. And I feel like it goes to this conversation around being able to bring your whole self to work. Between the three of you, you've spanned various industries and also, you know, a couple decades of work experience. And it's interesting to hear the evolution of ERGs weren't even a thing when that's such a hot button topic right now to being able to create the organization that you have. 
I'm curious, what did the early days of actually building Nate3 look like? It was exciting, chaotic, a little all over the place because there has been no precedence, right? Yep. There is no precedence to something like this. I had created networks. I knew how to bring communities together, especially in my nonprofit stints. So I knew how to do that. But in almost all of those stints, I was never the founder. I went in when there was an idea in place and then I helped corral the community. So I knew how to build communities in general. But again, there was no precedence here. We also were very clear right from the beginning that we didn't want this to be a flash in the pan, even though we didn't know what a five-year roadmap for Nate3 looked like. All three of us were very clear from the outset that this was not just a flash in the pan. We do something, we go try something, and then disappears. We were very, very clear that this had to be a scalable, sustainable model. And so an economic model of some sort was very important for us to create and build out. So we started with, you know, launching a free membership saying, let's even figure out if there is interest. Clearly starting with a known network, known geography, which is the Bay Area was important to create that seed group, if you will. And I'll tell you, it was interesting. We launched day three, March of 2020. And the world changed around us very quickly, something none of us anticipated or predicted. COVID hit. And in some yeah. ways, I think that was a silver lining oh, for wow. three. Although we were initially very skeptical what would happen because this was all about building connections and yeah. networks and meeting people. And here we were, we had to go all digital, all virtual immediately. I think we did maybe two in-person events when we launched and that was it. Then we had to quickly pivot and go all digital. But that turned out to be a silver lining because suddenly the global in our tagline started to take deeper meaning because Nathri became global. Our members today find us on the web when they are searching for South Asian women. That's what we hear. Others find us on our social media, which is very vibrant and active. And then, of course, the referral network works very well as well. So it's grown organically to over 2,000 members across 15 countries now. Wow. I mean, one of the things that I will say is we were very convinced right from the beginning that this was a South Asian professional women's network and that the idea was to connect these women, have them learn and share and uplift them. It was a professional women's network. And so it's been a a guiding North Star in that sense that obviously we want people's personal lives and their professional lives because you're bringing your whole self to work to be in balance. But as we've had discussions about, is this about dance or is this about other things? Of course, there are professionals in dance and that's very relevant, but the intention really has always been a professional women's network and very closely linked to that. I think it's a big compliment that I've had people say to me somewhat in surprise, oh, you run this like a business. Yeah. And that's the intent. As Maithili pointed out, the intent is to have a sustainable, long-term, scalable business model that we can actually grow this concept around. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because the one thing I was going to push back on is I actually feel like there are a lot of organizations of this sort cropping up. And Shruti, you might be able to speak to this just given the work you've done with Shakti Collaborative, but you guys have managed to carve out this niche. And I, I do agree that the South Asian professional aspect is the niche, but I also think The niche also is really the fact that you run it like a business. But I'm curious to hear from a tactical perspective, like what steps did you take in those early days to make sure that 
you were able to capture that and offer a really unique value proposition compared to all these communities that have cropped up? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the first things that we did is we got together an amazing group of South Asian women leaders who we call our founding circle. These women have been the earliest champions of Need3. They believed in us before we had really launched. And they also made a significant contribution with their capital and their time. And that was really important to us because, as Maitley and Chitra mentioned, the referral piece of sharing about Need3 with your networks, giving your time as mentors, the list goes on, is really important. All of our members, particularly those in our founding and leadership circle, are joining Need3 partly to give back. And so the fact that we did that and we launched with this amazing group, I think definitely set the stage for the type of organization we wanted to be and also the type of leaders that we were fostering, right? I think the other thing that we did very early on is define what our focus areas would be as an organization and actually assemble a team that would split up into those focus areas and execute on different initiatives. And so the first is professional and leadership development, right? How do we enable South Asian women to learn critical skill sets that would advance them in their careers? And this could be things from negotiation to communication skills to elevating your voice in meetings, right? We have a ton of programming we do for senior leaders as well around executive salons and board readiness. And we thought through each of these, not just at a whim, but by actually asking the women in our community, what are the skill sets you want to learn? What would you like to see that you don't get from other organizations in the same way? And we've had tremendous success doing that. The second pillar is mentorship. How do we enable both peer-to-peer connections between South Asian women, which we do with a circles program where women come together in small groups to discuss different professional and leadership topics, as well as one-on-one. We have a great program that we are rolling out right now for our members where we connect women one-on-one with a mentor who's years ahead of them, who's been there, done that in their industry or in their skill set, and that's been going great. The third pillar we have is social impact and community leadership. How do we enable South Asian women who are interested in giving back to their communities to do so at scale and to also understand and champion a cause that's really important to them? We have done a few workshops around how to find your cause, and it's not just at a surface level, it's like really going deep right? What speaks to you? How do you identify the organizations that you want to work with? Nonprofit board opportunities are really exciting and something that a lot of South Asian women have expressed interest in, but it's not very clear how you get to that. We have created programming and workshops around that. The last piece is around founders and funders, which is how do we create a community and support network for South Asian women founders and funders and identify them and actually bring them together, right? That's a huge piece of it. The fund is an extension of that. Yeah. And so it took a while, actually, between the f- three of us to decide what those few focus areas are. We also have a Young Professionals Initiative, too. But I think coming out with that and actually being organized around these themes has helped us a lot in terms of making sure we actually have goals for each of these verticals. We build teams that have experience doing these things. And I think if we sort of came out a little bit more generic without a clear idea of what these topics would be, I I don't know if we would have seen the same level of success initially. I really appreciate you highlighting the pillars. And it's something that, honestly, I think we've tried to adopt with Trailblazers because, as you all can imagine, there are a lot of podcasts, generally speaking. And then if you take the South Asian contingent, there's even more. But I think really carving out that unique value prop has, at least to me as an outsider looking in who's had the opportunity to participate in some of the things you've done, really made it a truly special organization. I'm curious, obviously, you're talking about these things like board readiness and negotiation strategies and all these things that women and professional women 
need to learn or could use just help on navigating. But I am curious, you know, South Asians are often overrepresented in certain spaces like the world of tech in the Bay Area where you guys are based. And we're not typically a huge part of the conversation when it comes to advancing minorities in these various spaces. I'm curious what your perspective is on this topic and how, with respect to that, NATRI has been received. You know, it's interesting if you think about the model minority and different conversation topics that have come up. I feel that while South Asians are overrepresented, as you say, in tech, I would say that they deal with a lot of the similar challenges that you see anywhere else. We hear the membership echo the whole, am I being talked over? How do I have executive presence? I remember a woman who was at Salesforce in um, sort of mid-level marketing position, Salesforce, and then LinkedIn, and then Facebook. And she said to me, if only somebody would say, you have the ability to go up on stage and command the room, just give me a chance, is what she said to me. And so I, I actually think that our South Asian women deal with many of the same issues, whether they're in tech or anywhere else. And some of this is, you know, one's personal demons. I always say women really need to not play the victim and need to take charge of their own destiny. I think men are better at being said no to, but that really women have to be able to go out there and own it. And I don't think that that need or that gap is different for South Asian women than uh, if anything, it's a little more exaggerated than it is for possibly the next Caucasian woman. If I may quickly add to that, Simi, I think especially in tech, having spent many years in tech, I'd say we are that invisible minority is very, very relevant because, again, South Asian men have done really well, especially as you yeah. get to the most senior roles. Yep. South Asian women, on the other hand, and the numbers say this as well, right? We've done really well up to sort of the middle management yep. level. It's as you start to get into the executive ranks, the numbers start to fall very steeply. Yeah, it's the whole pyramid scheme where the pipeline kind of breaks in the middle. I'm curious, that's talking about it with respect to South Asian women in the workplace. And culturally, I mean, truthfully to the point that you were making earlier, I also grew up in that setting where women were on one side talking about something, the men were on one side talking about something. I'm curious how that's infused itself into the conversations you have about South Asian women in the workplace, them being working women, like the cultural elements involved with that, with being like a lot of first-generation immigrants still being here and like people like Shruti and I being born here still being first-generation American. I'm curious what the perspective and takeaway and how that's been infused into the conversations you have within Nate 3 Yeah, I would just say in the early days of Nate 3 we actually started by organizing get-togethers of South Asian women we knew in our homes. It was very informal. It was when we were trying to actually scope out what this community would like to see. And the overwhelming feedback we received from the women who attended these gatherings was I've never ever been in a space before with other South Asian women where we are talking about our careers or professional ambitions or leadership, what we're going through at work. And that's just a space that's never existed. Wow. And so it's been recognized from the beginning that we're creating this new space and that we are expanding the social fabric of what we're used to in the South Asian community. So it's very much been a part of our DNA. Yeah, We recognize that. We try to weave in that cultural context everywhere we go. And I remember in different events when we've done breakout rooms, South Asian women expressing to us things like, 
when I go to work and I talk about how my in-laws are coming into town and there's a lot of work I need to do to get the house ready and cook for them and just make sure they're really comfortable. Sometimes my colleagues who don't understand, they're like, why can't they just stay in a hotel? Right. And <laughs> so like, and I'm not generalizing, right? Everybody has a different experience with this, but like, there's something like that in our culture, right? There's these shared experiences, these values around family, et cetera, that Absolutely. sometimes aren't as relatable to other demographics. And so I think that's there as well. And it's something that we take pride in talking about. And our members feel really comfortable opening them up about these types of experiences because they often can't in other environments. And particularly when we think back to those family parties, I think some of those you know, stereotypes or the ways that we think about our culture are reinforced. And we provide a nice outlet, I think, to actually talk about that and hear from other women how they experience and go through it. Yeah. No, I really love that. And I think it's so important. I think it's underrated how much we talk about the cultural lens we apply to certain conversations we have. I mean, that's why Trailblazers exist. I could have done a general podcast on leaders across various industries, but the lens you get when you're talking to someone who shares that heritage with you is is very unique and goes to the fact that I knew exactly what you were saying the, the minute you ta- started talking about in-laws and that whole conversation and family dynamics. I want to turn to the Nate3 Futures Fund because I think it's truly one of the most incredible initiatives you've launched. I'd love, Mithley, maybe if you could just spend a couple seconds telling us a little bit about what it's all about and what you're trying to do with the fund. Sure. I was at an event yesterday that had a room full of female VCs. And when I had to introduce myself, I did start by saying I'm a non-traditional venture capitalist, especially compared to everybody else in the room, because I've been an angel investor now for 15 plus years. I was an entrepreneur before that. And it was the frustration that I experienced as an entrepreneur. This was 15, 16 years ago when there was absolutely no representation at all, especially in tech entrepreneurship. That led me to create some impact and play a role in moving that needle that started my investing journey. And it was through that and advising founders, serving on advisory boards, et cetera, that I saw how much of a need there was in this space as a female entrepreneur, as a woman of color, when you are starting to think about funding, even before that, to determine, is this even a venture scale idea? Most women start out not even knowing how to figure that out, not Mm -hmm. having a group of people that they can just brainstorm and get input because they don't know where to start. And so my contribution there was to just do it informally. I would have informal office hours before office hours were even a thing (laughs) anywhere, right? I opened up my calendar and would meet literally 10, 15 founders a week. I actually got a lot of excitement and adrenaline just by hearing all these innovative ideas. So for me, it was never a burden or a chore. In fact, I'd probably say when I first had my conversation with Shruti, the fund idea was the one that was predominantly in my mind. I really wanted to create a fund where South Asian women were prominent investors. And a lot of that came about through some of my experiences with female-led investor networks. I was already an LP in several of them where I saw how incredibly collaborative can be when you have a network-based approach or a community-based approach to investing. There was a lot of educational component to it as well. But again, I didn't see women that looked like me in any of these networks. And I felt that there was this huge untapped potential here. We were literally leaving money at the table by not 
corralling women in our community to start thinking about starting their investor journey and also doing it in a way where the barrier to entry was not very high. Yeah. Right. If you want to be an LP in any of, I'd say even a small sized fund, you have to write pretty large checks. Sometimes, yep. you know, the minimum check size is a hundred thousand dollars. Which, of course, if you're a first time investor, especially a female investor that has a risk averse profile, you're not even going to think about it. So, really, want to break down those barriers and started thinking about the fund in October of last year started to reach out to our Nathri community of women to find out if there was interest. And the interest actually, it wasn't you know, one where there was an overwhelming interest to start with. It started to build up slowly. There were lots and lots of conversations, lots of presentations and sessions to educate them. And I'll tell you, the interesting thing that I learned from several women that would attend these information sessions, they loved the concept. They really wanted to be a part of this. There was a lot of FOMO effect. But they tell me, and these are women, by the way, that are financially independent. They tell me they had to ask for permission Oh wow! to take this leap to write a check. I think we've come some ways, even through my conversations with a lot of the women that are now LPs, but that's the demographic that we work with. Not everyone said that, but the fact that there were several women that said that reflects on the status of the sentiments here. But the fund really you know, started to pick up slowly. We set 3 million as the first goal, very modest. That was difficult. The journey to 3 million was quite difficult. The three to five started to pick up pace. And then we set smaller goals. And here we are between seven to 10 was a hockey stick group. Wow. Then let's not minimize the blood, sweat and tears that Maithili, along with some others, put into this, right? Maithili, Roli, a bunch of the other VCs who advised her were very instrumental. And Maithili herself put countless hours and lots of night hours and day hours into wow. making this a reality. So I think some of this really is a testament to Maithili's very deep belief that yeah. this was so important. You have me who actually has taken a lot of risks, I feel, with my career, but has never taken any risks with money. But given the cause, I've actually put money into the Nathri Futures Fund because wow. I feel the cause is just so valid. But exactly what she said, it's a big check and you've never invested, you're not going to. And so, you know, this explicit trade-off, I think a lot of people told my she must be crazy for the low check size she was ready to accept. But that was very explicitly part of the basis in which she constructed the concept. Wow. And do you guys mind sharing a little bit about your investment mandate? Sure. So it's a very differentiated investment mandate compared to yeah. a lot of similar funds. If you look at most what we call micro funds, the 10 million or sub $10 million funds, most of them will invest in very early stage companies pre-seed. And the reason for that is you want to take a deep ownership stake in the company. Typically, you know, a board seat, you want to be able to dictate. I use the word dictate a little loosely and more favorably, not in an unfavorable way. But you want to really take a stake in the company. We decided to go against that grain. We don't take a stake. We are stage agnostic. And that was very intentional. We do anywhere from very late seed to pre-IPO. So I have a Series D company in the portfolio right now. And the reason for that was very thoughtful. 
as I said, 75% of our LPs are first-time LPs. They've never done this before. And so felt very strongly that if we only invested in very early stage pre-seed, that takes 10 plus years to see any kind of exit, our investors are going to lose patience. And they're not going to see, of course, we may have a few outliers that have earlier exits, but I'm talking about a typical standard term for exit, right? Is much longer when you have very early stage. And so that was a very important investment mandate. Another investment mandate was we would not restrict exclusively to South Asian female-founded companies. On the investor side, of course, the focus was very mission-driven, really aligned with Naitri, because we view this as a sister organization to Naitri. And so on the investor side, it was really about ensuring that South Asian women had a platform to invest. So 90% of our investors are LPs are South Asian women. But on the investment side, our mandate is that there has to be at least one woman in an influential role in the company. And what we mean by that is either as a founder, on the management team or on the board, if it's a later stage company. Okay. And in terms of sector, we do enterprise tech, software systems, infrastructure applications that stack primarily. We only invest when there's a lead investor in place. So we co-invest alongside other lead investors. Very, very interesting. So broadly, that's the investment mandate. And have you guys noticed any patterns in just your LP base and how they approach investment decisions? I mean, I feel like so much of the conversation about having more diverse investors is the different perspective they bring. And you've created a literal hub of that. So I'm just curious if you've noticed anything and particularly, Shruti, I mean, you invest, you're literally an investor in Iconic. I'm curious if you notice certain dynamics and differences just based on this investor base versus a typical one in the spaces you've occupied. Yeah, I think it's similar to what Maithili mentioned in that most of our investors in the fund are first-time venture investors. And so there's a lot that Maithili and the team have been creating and organizing around education. We did a few what is angel investing workshops, and it was great. I learned a lot from it too, despite being in VC as my career, right? Because it's just a different way to invest versus when you're at a fund. And there's more that we're doing around bringing this community together, pitch sessions with founders, and really taking this from a baseline educational approach, not because we think everyone needs to know this, but because like we truly are together to do this together. And there's no stigma. You don't have to know that much, right? We are going to give you the tools to do that. And I think that's really important. And there is a lot of intimidation and stigma in general about putting your first check towards a company, right? Yeah. You're doing this as part of a network that truly gets that and is there to support you and make a statement and a change together. I think that takes a lot of that barrier and that fear and anxiety away. And that's exactly what I've experienced as an LP in the fund too. The other thing that's really cool, if you look at our LP base, is just the incredible operating experience and diverse experiences they have. Our youngest LP, I think, is 25, right? So the age range spans probably 40 to 45 years between our youngest and oldest LP. 50, 50 50? plus. Okay, 50 plus. Count me in for next time. (laughs) We would love to, yeah. And there's a fund advisory council as well of incredible operators who have signed up to be helpful to the fund as well as the companies. And I think it's telling that South Asian women, to Mike Lynch at those earlier points, have created and demonstrated incredible careers and experiences, but have not ever been given that path to give back to the next generation of innovators and startup entrepreneurs. And that's what we hope to enable for our LPs who would like to do that. 
as well, right? We're at a point now where there's critical mass of South Asian women who actually have capital to invest, yep. who actually have experience to invest. And we hope that part of what we do with the fund is also inspire that confidence that you can be part of these conversations. You can do this. Your talent and expertise are highly sought after. And it's what we hope to do with this network of LPs. Yeah. And I'd like to add one other interesting nuance that's starting to play out. I love it. That is, I've now gotten at least a dozen inbound requests from people I don't know, especially from the Midwest and other parts of the U.S., who want to create similar funds with their communities, all women. Wow. And this is really important because we have a playbook of sorts. I can tell you what are some of the things that work with a community fund like this and what don't. Right. Even if I were to do it again, I would do a number of things very differently. But if you look at venture, this is an ecosystem that talks about disruption all the time. And yet it is the ecosystem that is the least bit disrupted in any way. So you need these different kinds of disruption models like ours. This is a unique model, clearly. But imagine if we had many such models across different communities beyond South Asian especially started by women. And I think women are ideally positioned to create these kinds of models in venture, especially. So I feel very encouraged, not just for our community, but the fact that we can share this playbook with other communities. Yeah, No, that's a really, really powerful sentiment, especially on the point of disruption and how everyone talks about it from the startup perspective, but not on the people that are actually funding these startups. You know, I'm curious, You all have been champions for women in the workplace throughout your careers. My plea, Chitra, for you in your over 25 years of experience, Shruti, you're earlier in your career. How have you seen women in the workplace and attitudes towards them and us change over the course of your careers and in the work that you're doing now? It's interesting. A lot has changed and all for the good. I still remember when I started at the Boston Consulting Group after business school, there was a partner not Indian, but female. She went to a meeting uh, with a client and a group of other BCG people that was down in the deep South. Okay. And she said they were having these really great conversations and they broke to go to the restroom. And she said the conversation kept going all the way up to the door of the men's room. And that's where she fell off. So, you know, that's the way it was. It's harder for women to make themselves heard. And so I would say that the progress that people coming even before us has made has really set the building blocks and the stepping stones for women today. I'm very gratified when I talk to younger women now to see the increased confidence in so many cases and even the lack of knowledge, which is wonderful, of some of the ways that unconscious bias might play. And, you know, as I said early on, I think the biggest enemy for women actually is this feeling that the world is against them. And you read everything, there's unconscious bias, there's, you know, you talk about the broken step in the career ladder. And it would be very easy for women to just go away and hide in a hole and say, okay, the world is against me. And that's a great excuse for not getting anywhere. So I, I feel like over time, The pieces that are continuing to be put in place from amazing women at all levels has really contributed to a situation where I will say, for instance, the three guys I had on one of the startups I was with that were on the sales team and sales leadership actually had to say, let me consult with my wife. They each had one or two kids where they would agree to a business trip 
right? Because their wives were in careers that were equally demanding and one worked for the UN and the other was head of marketing at a winery. And so they actually had to have that conversation. I was just so gratified to see that the world has come to that place. So there's a long way to go, but it's come a long way. Yeah. Madly, how do you think you would have used Nate3 had it existed when you were starting your career? Oh, uh, wonderful, wishful thinking. <laughs> you know, for me, I grew up, Simi, in a home, a very progressive home. We were two girls, my sister, myself, and my mom never felt the lack of confidence to speak up. We were never told that, you know, you need to keep your voice low. You shouldn't speak your mind. Or if you were bold and aggressive, you wouldn't get married. I mean, I've heard my cousins <laughs> say all these things. Our house was completely the contrary. My mom read the newspaper first in the morning. So I grew up seeing wow. that. I grew up seeing my dad contribute equally to chores, even though my mom stayed at home and was a housewife. That's the home I grew up in. So there was never a feeling that we were inferior in any way. If anything, I perhaps had a bit of a superiority <laughs> complex. Right? And yet coming here to the US and working in tech was a completely different experience for me at that time. I was surrounded by mostly white men, all brilliant engineers, but who were very dominating. As the only and many, many times I was the only woman in the room, even when I felt like calling out their BS, I wouldn't. And it was completely contrary to my nature, right? I did grow up that way. I always called something out, and not in a confrontational way, but I was used to doing that. So I saw my personality changing quite a bit in the first few years, so much so when a very well-meaning boss came and told me, he actually said this to me, you know, I'm going to nominate you for a leadership program, but I need you to dress better. Oh, wow. Because if you really want to be seen as a management type, you need to dress differently. Wow. I want you to look at all the white female managers in the company. And even though I was shocked and upset, I didn't say a thing. I quietly followed the cue. Yeah. I would at least have had a forum to come talk about yep. this and get perspectives and some guidance if there had been an A3. You know, I was 23 at that time. Wow. Wow. So yes, I really wish I had an A3 at that time. I mean, again, no regrets in the way my career shaped and my persona shaped through those experiences. But I think I would have done better. Yeah. No, it's I mean, it's wonderful to hear that. And here you are creating what you never had. You touched on an interesting point. How have you all strived to find those male allies for your organization? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it started from our own networks. I think all of us are fortunate to know a number of men who have stepped up and become allies to Nate3 in different ways, right? It could be they work at a company and they are starting to share about Nate3 with employees that could be a good fit to be members of our organization. That's happened. It could extend to corporate sponsorship. For the fund, and Mike Lee can share more about this, there are actually a number of male allies who have come in as LPs wow. and are actually sharing deal flow with us if they work at a VC fund as well, which is super powerful. Yeah. So it's definitely happening in a number of ways, and we want to encourage more of that. It's I think it's been really gratifying to see that appreciation and recognition for who we are and what we do. And all of these men have daughters, wives, mothers, sisters, right, in their lives. And I think it's just a matter of 
continuing to do the great work that we do and just showing how much of a support network we can be. So it's definitely been huge. And what's been really cool too is among our younger generation, I've had a few male friends who have been like, Shruti, I love what you guys are building at Nate3. Can I help? And I was so impressed to hear that because that was never the relationship we had about this stuff. It was like, I do my thing, you do your thing, we're friends, right? One of those men is actually helping Maithili now with the fund, which has been super cool. Another man in my life messaged me on LinkedIn, Maithili, I haven't mentioned this to you, to ask to be an LP in the fund. I don't know if we still have room, so I'll have to chat with you about that. But he's also a young professional. And so it's really cool to see that. And I think our generation too is also very attuned to the fact that these communities are building and need to exist. And I hope that they will join forces with us. Yeah. It's really, really exciting to hear, honestly. I don't know. It makes me really excited for the future of what we have the potential to build and for my generation as we rise through our careers. The last big question I have for each of you is what piece of advice would you give to young South Asian women starting out in their careers today? So I would say the main piece of advice that I give women is just ask. I think that women are so bounded by their own fear that they don't reach out. They don't network. They don't ask for that next role. And they closely associated with that is just ask, but do not be afraid to hear no. Because that, I think, is why a lot of women don't ask. I think it's a huge detriment to their progression in their careers You know, I remember listening to this amazing story about a woman who was talking to her direct report, who was a guy, and he said to her, I'd love to go out of the country and work abroad. So that's why I'm renting. I have two small kids. It's a perfect time for us to do that. And she was like, why is he telling me I have a US job? But she was with a group of her peers. And apparently an international guy said, I'm looking for somebody. And she recommended this guy and he got the job. A woman on her team came up to her and said, how did he get that? That's so unfair. Nobody asked me, right? And I think that's wow. a great illustration yeah. of just ask, but don't be afraid to hear no. Yeah. My advice would be take risks and don't be afraid of failure. Because to me, a lot of what I've done in my life has been dictated by that. When I first came here as an immigrant grad student and started my career, that was not an option because we were still trying to create security, find our bearings and so on. So the concept of taking risks was not even in my realm of thinking. But when I had my first opportunity, and I did this at the peak of my tech career, in fact, This is exactly how it played out. I decided as I was driving into work one day that I was going to quit, even though I loved my work and I knew I was doing really well. I land up at work and my VP calls me and says that they have just put in the papers to have me promoted to VP. And I tell him, sorry, I can't take it because I've decided to quit. And the reason to quit was because I really wanted to spend time with my mom who had been diagnosed with cancer. And he thought I was nuts. He said, this is career suicide. I told him I'm going to do it because I cannot live with the thought of regret later down the road. I can be a VP any day. But that changed my career trajectory because after a few months when I went back, I did a complete pivot and went on to run a nonprofit. Some of my best lessons, my ability to bring community, build stuff, stemmed from that experience. My fundraising experience stemmed from that. So it made seem like failure 
because my resume today would have looked very different had I not done that. But honestly, I was not afraid and I do it all over again. So that's my advice. Go with your instincts, trust your instincts and don't be afraid of failure. It's okay. You can always get back on that bandwagon. I love that. Yeah, my advice would be to own your voice. And I say this as a young professional, I've been in rooms before where I know I'm the most junior person. I might be the only woman or person of color. And I've intentionally minimized my voice, not said anything, even when I had a question or I had something useful to say because I didn't feel like I belonged and it was okay for me to speak. And I think what I would encourage young South Asian women to do is to remember that if you're somewhere, if you're in a room or if you're in a position, you earn that through your own merit. And so you should remember that with that comes the ability to speak your voice. And often like you have great questions and you're very smart and some other guy says the same thing and you like catch yourself, and like, you know, darn it, that could have been yeah. me, right? I think we've all been there. And so I would just say to lean into that and you can take it in baby steps, right? It's not to say like you should be the person asking all the questions in the room from day one. But I set small goals for myself. I'm like, okay, I have to ask two questions today and then I've done a good job. And then you like, you know, work yourself up. And so I would just encourage that. Yeah. Oh, I really love that. Probably needed to hear it myself. I lied. I do have one last question for you guys because I'm just genuinely so curious and amazed by the conversation we've had here today. You guys have done so much with Nate3 already. What's next? I think for us, really, some of the big ticket items within A3 is, of course, solidifying our core program offerings, as Shruti mentioned, around professional leadership development, mentorship. We are testing out several pilot ideas in each of these, figuring out, iterating on those and really solidifying those concepts. Bringing on some staff because we're all stretched thin. We all have several other things. For me, of course, between Nathri and the fund, I feel like I'm drowning many days. But of (laughs) course, love every bit of it. But I think our big imperative for 2022 will be to bring on some paid staff. So an appeal out there (laughs) for folks that may be interested in working at Nathri. We'd love to hear from you. And figuring out our economic model for scalability and sustainability, I think that will be very important for Natri, not just for our current members, but for everyone else who joins Natri. Yeah, and I would just add that I know Michael mentioned we have members in 15 countries. We obviously are able to achieve and reach members that are closer to us. And so we would love to do more in other geographies. We we hope to just start with in-person events, right? Hopefully we can do that soon in other geos in the U.S. where there are density of Natri members. And hopefully we can expand where members have this great experience where they can connect virtually and digitally with anybody around the globe. We have a hub, actually, which is a member-only network online where our members can interface with each other and have discussion groups and all of that, but also have the in-person local connections, right? And so having that dual experience, I think, would be great in our future and something we want to work towards. I think that the last thing I will say is we are about continuous improvement. We are about product market fit. We continue to listen to what our members have to tell us. And then we continue to refine our offering because that is the most important thing. We have, I think, 90% plus of our members rate each of our events a four over five on a scale of one to five. I think our net promoter score last time we looked at it was 86. So uh, we are very focused on delivering what people need most. And so 
I think that Nate3 will continue to evolve its offerings, I think, around the same pillars that we've described. But I think, honestly, Nate3 in a year could look very different for those reasons. Wow. Well, I'm super excited to continue seeing what you all build. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And to everyone's listening, if you're a South Asian woman, obviously go and join this community and support it however you can. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Simi. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.